This is for you. Now entering the game for Philly Press Box Radio, Bill Furman and Jim Chet Chesco. It's Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. Welcome to the Philly Press Box Radio Roundtable, brought to you by the Irish Rover Station House in Langhorne, PA, and Allstate Insurance in Westchester, PA. I'm Bill Furman. I'll be your host tonight, along with my partner, Jim Chet Chesko. Hey, Chet, there's still not any live sports going on, and won't be for a while, but we're going to do even better tonight with our special guest, a baseball lifer, Mr. Ray Fossey. Yeah, Bill, this is going to be a fun show for sure. Ray has a boatload of stories from his five decades in the game, and we have no shortage of questions for him. But first, Bill, we we used uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me as our theme song the last couple of weeks. This week, (laughs) let's go with with this one from The Offspring. Keep them separated, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Chad, I had a chance to talk with Ray and our friend Ambrose Reagan the other day for quite a while. Uh, we want to thank Ambrose for introducing us to Ray. That was great. And uh, I know we're going to have a blast tonight. By, by the way, Chad, I wanted to ri- remind our listeners to join our Philly Press Box Radio trivia show immediately following this show. Uh, it'll be on Facebook Live on my page, Bill Furman's page. So, uh, we'll have that set up 8 o'clock, 8 to 8.30, round two. We had a lot of fun when we did that on Sunday with, in, our, uh, in our first try at that. Yeah, you did the premiere show the other day, and it was a big hit with all those who played. Brian Brown taking the week one honors. Looking forward to show number two. I'm sure you have another batch of great Philly sports trivia questions ready to go, Bill. Oh, I sure do, and uh, we're, uh, we're going to get to all of it, that's for sure. But, hey. Let's talk baseball, and uh, let's welcome the two-time world champion, two-time all-star, two-time gold glove winner, and current voice of the Oakland A's, Ray Fossey, to Philly Press Box Radio. Welcome, Ray. Guys, how are you doing? Can you hear me okay? Sounding yes, good. Well, I know that you guys are separated. I'm in Arizona, so, you know, we're, we're <laughs> well separated. So, uh, yes, listen, are. Bill, I, I'm glad that Ambrose Regan introduced us because, he and his wife, Cindy, and their son, Max, have been doing a great job in the city and the area of New York and uh, really helping out a lot of people there. So I want to send along, listen, if you know Ambrose, then you're in good company because he is one of the best in the world. So appreciate yeah. it. Great to be on with you guys. And uh, too bad we only have just a half hour. You know, we could go all night if you want to, but uh, I'll leave that up to you guys. <laughs> well, okay. Ray, since you mentioned that, Chet and I already talked about if we don't cover all this stuff because we got a load of stuff for you, we might just have to sign up for part two. Absolutely. Whenever you want to do it. I have nothing to do. I'm just catching up on my work. and <laughs> I just fill, I just, I just filled in my, my book that I keep, uh, and all of a sudden I've got to put postpone. And I, I don't like to do that, but I think it's good for the country and if we miss a, another month of baseball in the month of April, I know you guys will be able to cover everything, and I think oh, yeah. it will be great for the country. And, and let's hope and pray that by the end of April, president seems to think that it's going to peak out in two to three weeks. And, uh, listen, I know my wife and I, right now as we speak, our oldest daughter with our two grandsons came over. They're in the back with the uh, social distancing. There's about 10 feet apart. My wife actually is throwing candy 
to our grandsons, and they're catching and eating. So it, it, it's, a, it's a nice setup, but I just, uh, let's, like I said, let's hope we get baseball back sooner than later. But uh, happy to be on with you guys, and if you want to continue later, you have my number anytime. I'm happy to come on because, like Ambrose said, 50 years, there's a lot that's happened in my, my yeah. career, my life. And by the way, guys, just as a, just as a side note for people listening, uh, this is Wednesday, uh, April 1st. No April Fool's joke, but in reality, on Saturday, my wife and I will be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. So uh, we're going to do it quietly, but at least we get to do it, and uh, that's special. So my wife, Carol, is a special lady, and uh, we met and got married 50 years ago this April the 4th. When, by the way, at that time, people say, well, what? how did you get married in baseball season? I said, we didn't start until April the 7th. So that was the reason we got married on April 4th, which is also my birthday. So it's, it's one I that I will that. never forget. Well, and Ray, that's what I was going to start you out with. Uh, Happy 73rd birthday, Saturday, and 50th anniversary. And uh, I got to ask you, though, uh, you know, it's spring training time. How did you pull off getting married in the middle of spring training (laughs) or in part of spring training? But uh, maybe it was different 50 years ago. Well, it it was different, uh, Bill. and, And I know that during that time, it was spring training. Carol and I had met in 1966. I was playing in Reno, Reno Silverstock. She was going to school at the University of Nevada, Reno. And they kicked her out of her sorority house because they wanted to do some construction. She moved in with her roommate. And, of course, in minor league baseball. And, and Bill, you played? Did you play no, sir. baseball? Not, not, okay, not because, professionally, no. Okay. Well, all I know is that when you're playing Class A baseball, we had four roommates. We had two bunk beds and one bedroom. And that's how we lived. And, you know, when Carol and I met, uh, she went on to teach. I went on to play in the minor leagues, and we got married in 70, which was my first full season of playing Major League Baseball, even though I played in 69 and got hurt. But Alvin Dark was our manager in spring training, and I said, hey, Skip, do you mind if I go to Reno to get married? And he said, (laughs) I don't care. That's fine. But you have to be back on April the 5th, which this was on the 3rd when I asked him, and I left after that. We got married on the 4th. On the 5th, I was playing a game against the Angels in Tempe. And uh, after celebrating our wedding day with my wife's family in Reno, because everybody was in Tracy at the time, and came up to the uh, – I think it was the – I don't want to say think. I know it was a a, a, – oh, it was a hotel. I can't even think. I've lost four words because they tore it down. But uh, we got married, and I I played the game on the the 5th in Tempe, and I started – the game on the 7th in Cleveland, Ohio, my first game in 1970 as a married catcher. So it was a, a great journey, and here we are 50 years later. And I just hope, guys, that since that mine turning 73 on Saturday, that they don't come out with this rule, hey, we're going to resume baseball, but if you're over 60, you can't participate. <laughs> I'm going to be bummed, man. <laughs> but, but well, no, it's, been a, it's, been a great, it's been a great ride. Yeah, well, hey, Ray, you were a three-sport All-State player in Illinois in high school and you were recruited by legendary legendary coach Paul Bear Bryant to play football at Alabama why baseball and how was it telling coach Bryant no well you've done your homework and I I appreciate that because that was something that I enjoyed and this is why I think that for all kids you know we're seeing a lot now our grandsons are playing in travel baseball and their their father is their coach which he says I'm not going to travel we'll play here and being in Arizona, there are a lot of teams that come in from all over the country, especially in the west part of the country, and play these tournaments on the weekend. 
but I'm a strong believer that every sport helps you in the other sport that you're playing. And I played football, basketball, and baseball, and every sport that I played in football and basketball helped me in my baseball career. But a quick story, I was asked to uh, go to University of Alabama by the great Paul Bear Bryant, and uh, after playing football, I turned down the scholarship. Two weeks later, I got a full-ride baseball scholarship. And I was told later that if you get on the campus of Bear Bryant and he wants you to play football, you will play football. And I decided, unfortunately, I played baseball. But I will say that whenever I was with the A's in 1973, we went into Alabama. Jim Bank, our traveling secretary, his father and the family was good friends with Bear Bryant. So at that time, we would fly in to play our double-A team. I think it was Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and our Birmingham, one of the two. But anyway, we flew in. We were having lunch, about 10 of us, out, and there he is with that, that hat on. And I'm going, wow, there's Coach Bear <laughs> Bryant. And so Jim Banks said, uh, Coach Bryant, I'd like to introduce you to the players. Now, you guys, I'd never met Bear, Bear Bryant until that day. That day. I never met him. It was 1965. I was off the scholarship. So do the math. Eight years later, I'm standing in front. And Jim Banks says, Sal Bandle, Joe Rudy, Gene Tennis, Reggie Jackson, Ray Fossey. He goes, Ray Fossey? Didn't we want you to come to our school? And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I never met the man, but that was the memory. Someone said if you ask him the yardage of the Auburn game in 1962, third quarter, he could tell you. He was that brilliant. But for him to do that and say that, and I'll be honest with you guys, um, Pete Elliott, who was the uh, football coach at the University of Illinois, I was playing basketball in a state championship in that uh, senior year. And he told my coach, uh, basketball, football coach, he said, I, I want him to come here to play football. And, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, I didn't because I had the legs. And when he said, I can put 25 pounds on you, you won't even know it. I knew it would be in my upper body. And I also knew that I would never throw another baseball. And I made the right decision. Uh, baseball is a contact sport as a 70 all-star game with, uh, I think Pete Rose played for the Phillies at one time, which is a whole nother story. Uh, but, uh, you know, I realized it was a contact sport and being a catcher before these new rules came about, uh, yes, catching uh, and baseball is a contact sport. <laughs> well, Ray, this is Chet. I wanted to say hello. And uh, I think Chet, how like you Bill, you know, good, real good, Ray. I'm an old timer like Bill. And as everybody our age knows, you spent your first few years with the Indians. Then you went to open in your first two years with the athletics, 73 and 74, you ended with a world championship. Now, you were a pretty good catcher, but I'm sure it helped to be behind the plate for guys named Vita Blue, Catfish Hunter, <laughs> Ken Holtzman every four or five days, right? Well, you know, I, I, to be honest, you're, you're right, but to be honest, I was disappointed. See, I grew up in southern Illinois, Marion, Illinois, a great little town, played baseball, football, basketball, went to high school there, and I was drafted out of high school in the 1965 draft. I collected baseball cards, and my boyhood idol was Stan Musial. Not a bad guy to had a copy yeah. except for his stance. I, that corkscrew stance, I would never do it. But such a gentleman, and, you know, I idolized the man. Stan, the man, I idolized him. So, you know, having seen him and know that he was a Cardinal his whole career, that was my dream. That, that you know, that was before free agency and all the things that are happening today's baseball. But I, my thought was that I would stay, stay with the Cleveland Indians my entire career. So when I was traded, I caught Gaylord Perry in 1972. And, you know, we're going to talk about, hopefully, uh, a guy named Richie Allen. Or oh, Dick yeah. Allen, don't call me Richie. But, uh, but, but I caught Gaylord in 72, and there's a great story about him facing uh, Richie Allen in Chicago. But 
when I was traded, I, I was seriously was disappointed because, first of all, I thought, wait a minute, I, these guys just won the World Series. And, you know, nobody thought about repeating at the time because only the Yankees right. had won more, actually won three consecutive, they won the five. So when I got traded, I'm thinking, I'm a year late. And Dick Green, I'll never forget saying to me, or I asked him, I said, why is why this club so lackadaisical? And he said, well, right, we know that we're ready to play. We know that we're going to win our division. We're going to play somebody from the East, which was the Orioles. And then we're going to play somebody from the National League, which are the Mets, and we're going to beat them. We're going to be world champions. I went, what? <laughs> what, are you talking, what are you talking about? You know, I just came from Cleveland. On an opening day, we were eliminated, you know. And here the guy's talking about winning a world championship. But I realized that I was joining a club. My first game that I caught, guys, I, I was in Tucson when I was told of the trade. And a little bit of about that, the way Charlie Finley was, I was driving around Tucson with my wife, Carol. It was an off day. And I went back to our apartment complex, and John Lowenstein was a, a teammate, and a, he lived with he and his wife next, uh, next door in the apartment. And there was a note on my door that said, it's John, knock on my door. So I knocked, and he said, hey, I need to go down to the stadium. Phil Sagan wants to see you. If I had been driving around another 10 minutes, I would have heard that I've been traded to the Oakland A's on the radio. Because Charlie was emphatic <laughs> about, Let's, we're, we're going to announce this. I don't care if he knows it or not. So I went down and was told. But, you know, guys, uh, I was fortunate to catch Gaylord in 72 when he was 24 and 16 and won the Cy Young Award. Fast forward two years later, I catch Catfish Hunter in Oakland, and he wins the Cy Young Award. Both of those guys were very – when they accepted their uh, Cy Young Award, both of them said, quote, I would never have been able to do it without my catcher, Ray Fossey. And, you know, this is an individual award. They could have very easily said, you know, thank you and, you know, all this thing. But they they both said that. But – to answer your question, Chet, when I arrived in spring training with 10 days ago in spring training, Dick Williams was the manager. And Charlie Finley had said, I want you to go up to Mesa because you need to take pictures. And I'm thinking, you know, what's the big deal? They said Oakland on the front didn't have a number or a name, so what's the big deal? Well, Dick Williams said very quickly, I don't care in so many words about pictures. I want you to catch this pitching staff. We have 10 days. You need to learn this pitching staff. It wasn't that hard, guys, because my first game that I caught was Catfish Hunter. I didn't break a sweat. He threw – he pitched uh, five innings, 15 batters, not one major contact, and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I was playing a game behind the plate. I put a target said, you're so good, hit this, and he did. You know, I'd move inside, hit this, and he did. He was the <laughs> most unbelievable pitcher I've ever caught. I mean, nothing against anybody else, but, guys, when I caught Catfish in Oakland, and I'd be behind the plate, you know how the umpires will go out behind the catcher? And they'll yep. watch the pitcher so they can get an idea. The pitcher, the umpire will whisper to me, says, this is going to be a quick game. And I said, <laughs> oh, thank you very much, guys. And I'd move about six inches outside. I wouldn't move. I'd put the target up, boom, and hit the target. Boom, strike, let's go. You know, and, and th- that's why those games were played in about two hours, two hours, ten wow. minutes. I mean, that was a long game for us. But, no, the pitching staff with, with Catfish, Kenny Holtzman, Vita Blue, John Blue Moon Odom, and then Raleigh Fingers out of the bullpen, nothing against Daryl Knowles and – and uh, Glenn Abbott, any of those other guys out of the bullpen. But realize this, in 1974, when the A's beat the Dodgers in five games, the A's in a five-game World Series used only five pitchers. Picture that today. We only had nine wow. pitchers on the staff. Wow. Five pitchers were used in that World Series, nine pitchers on the staff. That means four guys didn't even pitch, and <laughs> we beat them in five games. In game one, Game one, Kenny Holtzman started, went four and a third. Raleigh Fingers, the closer, came in in the fifth inning, pitched four and a third inning. And Catfish Hunter pitched the final out, struck out Joe Ferguson for the save. Now, I did not know West Sock was our pitching coach. 
I'll be honest with you. I'm looking at the bullpen, and I see Catfish throwing. I'm thinking, well, he's throwing in between starts because he won the game in Baltimore to get us the World Series. Alvin Dark comes out, and he pulls the bullpen. I went, what's going on here? Catfish <laughs> comes running in, and he strikes out Joe Ferguson. I thought that Catfish was throwing on the side, and Alvin said, you know, come on in. I did not know until Westock told me about five years ago up in Seattle. He lives in Seattle, came out to the Safeco Field uh, to watch a game. Oh, it's called T-Mobile now. I've got to get it straight. But anyway, I, I mentioned that. He says, you want to know the real story about that? I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, Alvin Dark said to me, uh, uh, Westock, he said, I need somebody for the final out because I don't know if Raleigh can finish this game. Catfish tapped him on the shoulder. He said, hey, Skip, I'll get the final out for you. At a Dodger stadium, you could actually run underneath. You didn't have to cross the field. You could run underneath and then end up in the bullpen. So he had done that. He said, I'll get the final out. He runs down to the bullpen, starts to warm up. Raleigh had given up a home run, I think, to make it a 3-2 game. Catfish comes in, strikes out Joe Ferguson, game over. And all this time, until about five years ago, I thought it was here, Catfish throwing on the side. But, no, he had tapped wow. Alvin Dark on the shoulder and said, I'll give you the final out, and he did getting the save. It's an unbelievable story. <laughs> wow. Well, hey, Ray, this summer a former teammate of yours will be inducted onto the Phillies Wall of Fame, Manny Trio. Manny was an oh, A's wow. uh, late-season rookie call-up in both 73 and 74. Any memories of a young Manny Trio? Well, it just goes to show you how Charlie Finley worked. Dick Green was retiring. And, you know, I asked Gene Tennis, and I, I'll answer your question, but I asked Gene Tennis in an interview, I said, Gino, if the club had stayed together, how many world championships do you think the A's could have won? He said, that's a good question. He said, because I don't know that we could have been beaten. Because if the A's had kept catfish in 75, and then as Dick Green retired, Manny Trio comes in. Phil Garner was also in that mix as well. And then different guys would come in and continue to play. But that was a dominant team that just unfortunately Charlie didn't believe in free agency, which came in 76. And if, if he had been willing to give a multi-year contract to Joe Rudy, Sal Bando, Gene Tennis, those guys would have stayed together. Reggie won the test free agent market, and I don't blame him. You know, he's a great Mr. October. You know, he's a superstar. He's up in the Hall of Fame, great with the Yankees. But Manny Trio, I'll never forget, was as smooth as it was at second base. He was smooth. He could turn the double play. I mean, he was as good. But you think about it, he learned watching – Dick Green. I mean, he, you knew he's going to be good because Greeny was the best that I'd ever seen at second base. You know, they talk about the shift, and you see them now in baseball. I would give a sign with catfish pitching, and I'd look out peripherally. I could see all the infielders, and, and you know, for all the catchers, realize catching is the only position that you can look straight out and see everybody on the field. No other position can do that. But as a catcher, you can stand at home plate. You can see right to left, first to third, everybody in between. So I would look, as I'm giving the sign, I'd see Dick Green. I'm going, oh, no, he's not going, oh, this is bad. Next thing I know, ground ball is hit. Dick Green's right in front of him. Greeny, how'd you do that? He said, I never wanted to give up my position before the pitcher released the ball. I knew that Catfish could put the ball where you called it, and I knew the hitter would hit the ball where he was going to hit it, and I would be there. But I would – because, you know, a hitter, if he watches an infielder, you know, he can see a pitcher, but he can also see an infielder move. And the infielder at times can tell – what the pitch is going to be in the location. So Dick Green was smart enough and knew that Catfish was good enough with his location. He would not move his position until Catfish had his arm up ready to throw. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I bet that's how good Catfish or uh, Greeny was. But it also showed you that Manny Trio learned from watching one of the best in the game. 
And I think it's a, it's a great attribute. Credit to Manny Trio to go in your Hall of Fame. I think it's great. Phillies have a great team. Harry Callis came in. We're going to come, hopefully, into Philadelphia this year. I'm looking forward to it, especially with Joe Girardi managing. But I remember in 2011, the A's went into Philadelphia with Charlie Manuel was managing. It was the first year uh, managing by Bob Melvin. Three years later, with the interleague play, the Phillies came to Oakland. And, guys, I'll never forget, Harry Callis, God rest his soul, came into our booth. And our producer, uh, Larry Lewis, likes to go back to the Philadelphia A's. So he gave a script to Charlie Callis, or Harry Callis. And he sat down in our booth and narrated it. And I jokingly said, how many takes? And they laughed and said, it's only one. I knew that. But we still play that. And Harry Callis, with that great voice, did this narration of the Philadelphia Phillies to the Kansas City A's, or Philadelphia A's, Kansas City A's, Oakland A's, and brought it to the current. And, man, I get goosebumps just thinking about that. And, and you know, to see his son, Todd, now, who is broadcasting with the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, to see how, to Houston Astros, uh, to see how well he's doing. But Harry Kellis, one of the best there ever was. Yes, indeed. Well, you mentioned Dick Allen a little bit ago, and uh, you didn't play with Dick, Richie <laughs> Allen, but when he was with the White Sox, you saw a lot of him, I'm sure. He was, of course, a great slugger who started his terrific career with the Phillies in 1964. Yeah. He just missed getting into the Hall of Fame a few years ago, but there's now a lot of optimism that he will get the needed votes this December from the Golden Days Committee or whatever it's called. Your memories of Dick Allen and whether he is Hall-worthy. One of the strongest men in baseball. And, yes, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I have no doubt that he'll be there. I'll be very happy when he is. I was happy this year to learn that Ted Simmons was uh, selected by the Veterans Committee, and he's going in uh, this summer. And Dick Allen, I mean, you talk about <laughs> – we were in Chicago, and, and it, was, it was 1972 because Gaylord Perry was pitching. And Gaylord was known – that, you know, everybody said that he threw this illegal pitch. I don't know why they keep talking about that. But uh, having said that, I mean, it was one of, one of the best I've ever seen in my life, by the way. And I only say that because he wrote a book Gaylord did called Me and the Spitter. And Gaylord would, would laugh and he'd say, hey, I only throw what my catcher calls. Well, we were in Chicago, and Ken Asperbani was the manager. It was a Friday. It was a weekend series. We had a doubleheader on Sunday. And on Friday, Ken Asperbani called Gaylord to me in his office, and he said um, – you know, this has nothing to do with you, with you, Gaylord, but the president of the American League has said that at any time when the opposing manager thinks a pitcher, any pitcher, not just you, I mean, any pitcher could be, well, we all knew what it was all about, that if they think he's throwing an illegal pitch, they can go out to the home plate umpire and ask the umpire to check the pitcher for a foreign substance. So we're playing the White Sox. Gaylord pitched the second game on Sunday uh, at Old Comiskey Park. And the A, we, Cleveland, we had a one nothing lead going into the seventh inning. And I kept looking over the first six innings. I'm going, Chuck Tanner, what are you, what are you not seeing? I mean, the ball is just dropping out of sight. You know, it starts in about knee high and ends up in the dirt almost. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I'm going, what are you waiting for? Well, he was waiting for Dick Allen to come up. And Richie Allen came up at the bottom of the seventh inning. And thing about Gaylord, he was a sleight of hand, which you've watched his hands go to his cap and, you know, all these different things, you know. Well, he had it in the back of his neck, and he would have two tubes of capsule, which is a very hot substance. The late Jim Warfield, our trainer, would, would apply this capsule to his back, and this heat would go up into his neck, and he had the hair, and he had this goop in the back of his neck. And so the umpire, when Chuck Tanner came out, the umpire went out, was, and I, I couldn't go. I had to stay at home plate. Guys, I picked up Richie Allen's bat, 
It was a 42-ounce bat. I almost yeah. broke my back picking it up, top-heavy. And I said, man, you're strong. <laughs> and so Gaylord, as he went down to get the rosin, he would wipe the back of his neck. And he picked up the rosin. The umpire went out, saw this goop on the back and all this heat and, you know, this hot day. And he said, Ugh, you know, I'm not going to. No, he's okay. He's okay. So he comes back behind home plate. Chuck Tanner goes back to the dugout. I called for a slider. Gaylord, we had an add and subtract system, and he went four or five. And I, and I said, I hope you have enough. And he didn't. That ball came in like a batting practice fastball. The result, <laughs> a, home, a home run by Richie Allen. He dropped that head of that 42-ounce bat on it, and that ball smoked it in the upper deck and tied the game. The White Sox won the game in a walk-off in the ninth inning. But Chuck Tanner being smart, he could have come out in the first inning. But, it, but it's like when, when somebody hits out of order. You know, why are you going to expose it until the guy gets a big hit? And then you can come out, hit out of order, now he's out. Well, it's the same with Chuck Tanner. And he was smart enough to realize that I'm going to wait till my, my big guy's up there, and he did. And he hit the home run. But we're playing the White Sox in, in the Cleveland. And everybody knows that Dick Allen, Richie Allen, loves the horses. But at Cleveland, they had the thoroughbreds in the afternoon, and then they had the trotters at night. So you could spend virtually the whole afternoon and evening at a track. So we're, we're playing the, uh, the White Sox. Gaylord's pitching. Top of the first inning, one, two, three. We, the Indian score, run in the bottom of the first inning. Dick Allen comes up hitting fourth, leading off the second inning. He says, well, the Lord's got all he needs. Let's go to the track. <laughs> that, was, that was it. And then actually, Gaylord, he was right, because we beat him one to nothing or two to one or something like that. But, you know, Gaylord Perry in that season, and, and Bill, I talked to you about this, but you know, if you Google Gaylord Perry 1972 and you go to baseball reference and see his statistics, he, he made 40 starts. He had 40 decisions. He was 24 and 16. He had one save, came out of the, the stands in Kansas City, went to the bullpen, came in and saved the game. He had 29 complete games. Yeah. I, I, said, I said a sub-3 ERA is a sub-2. He's had a 192 earned run average and yep. just an unbelievable. And, and I, I may have said this to Bill the other day, but uh, bears repeating. Ken Espermani would come to the mound, and he'd say, Gaylord, how do you feel? And Gaylord would look at the bullpen. He said, better than that guy. I'm staying. Okay. And he'd walk <laughs> off the mound. And, and as a result, he had 29 complete games. And if you do the math, it's 342-plus innings. 40 starts times nine is 360. I mean, obviously, there were extra inning games, whatever. He pitched 342 of a possible 360 innings of, of, of 40 starts. He wins That's the amazing. Cy Young Award. And, it, and then it goes to San Diego. He was the first pitcher to win a Cy Young Award in both leagues. But an amazing pitcher, and he's, he's I mean, just a great, great individual and uh, such, a, such a, a great guy to catch. And, you know, in, in, you know there's a, a statement that he made when I was traded. He said uh, to Phil Segge, how could you trade a quarterback? And, I mean, he was such a great guy. But when he was traded to the, uh, to the Indians, we were player representatives. He was with the Giants, and I was with the Indians. And we were Acapulco for the player uh, winter meetings with the player representatives. And he came up to me, sat down with my wife, Carol, and me, and said, hey, Padna, can you catch it? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, well, I just got traded to the Indians. And I learned very quickly, I better learn how to catch it because it was the most devastating pitch I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, he, he had, a, he had a, a, a puff ball. Do you ever see him pitch where he would pick up the rosin and he'd get all this rosin on the baseball and he'd throw it in this big puff of white smoke would come out mm-hmm. and distract the hitter. You know, and he had a great fork ball. And, and, you know, Rod Carew, one of the greatest hitters in the game when the Twins were in town in, in Cleveland, 
And uh, he came up to hit, you know, and he said, you know, these guys are psyching themselves out. They think he's throwing this illegal pitch, you know, this special pitch. You know, if they just come up here and concentrate on hitting, I said, yeah, Rodney, I know exactly what you mean. Gaylord threw him three of the nastiest pitches I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he went straight down. He, he went back to the dugout shaking his head. I, I guess he knows what he's doing, you know. But, but one of the great ones. And uh, Dick Allen, I hope he gets in the Hall of Fame. He deserves it. And, uh, again, you know, the thing that I, I can still vividly see now, no uh, ear flap, which, you know, prior to, I don't know, it was grandfathered in because I know that um, Tim Raines always wore a non-flap. Uh, but now every player has to wear an ear flap on the side that they hit lefty on the left side, or right side lefty, left on the right side, right-hand hitter. But, you know, he wore that no flap, and he never, ever showed those mighty biceps that he had. He always wore that long sleeve Philly or White Sox sweatshirt, and you just knew underneath that the most massive arms you've ever seen, the strength. And anybody, you know, guys today use a bat. I mean, when you're out at, at uh, talking to Phillies players, or play, what size bat you use? Oh, maybe 31 ounces, 30. Dick Allen used a 42. Babe Ruth used 52. So you talk about dropping the head. I mean, Dick Allen wow. was just straight up with the bat, and he dropped the head of the bat on it. And he made contact, man. He was unbelievable. But uh, a great guy. It was fun when he'd come to the plate because I knew whoever was pitching against him, it was always going to be a challenge. But, again, one of the strongest men I've ever seen in baseball. And, again, I hope. And he definitely deserves to be in Cooperstown. Very good. Well, hey, Ray, many people think that collision with Pete Rose that you, you mentioned his name a little bit ago was uh, your major career injury when, in fact, in 1974, several years later, is when you had that serious injury breaking up a locker room fight between our Philadelphia Cheltenham High's own Reggie Jackson that you mentioned with Billy North. What what happened with that that uh, Reg got got in a little tussle in the locker room and got you hurt? Well, it started out opening day and, and Billy North. Um, you know, you figure Trinidad alone, you're going to be hustling, and and he didn't run hard to first base and. You know, the great thing about those A's teams, and again, fortunate and blessed to be a part of two of those world championships, we policed ourselves. It was like the coaching staff was there. They would watch, but we would all stand around the batting cage. And, you know, hey, you know, you look like you're dropping your hands a little bit. So we would watch each other hit. Well, in this particular instance, Billy North hit a routine ground ball to short and didn't run it out. I mean, he, he ran but didn't really bust it down the line with his speed. The shortstop bobbled the ball. Billy barely thrown out at first base. He comes back to the dugout. And Reggie said, hey, man, you run that ball out, you're safe. And he didn't like it, what Reggie said. And he said in so many words that if the manager doesn't say anything, you keep your blank and blank mouth shut. And that started opening day, and it kept festering and festering and festering until it came to a head in Detroit in June. And it happened to be in front of my locker. And they evidently had been talking about uh, what had occurred with their girlfriends. And one of them said to the other, don't get the women involved. And boom, they're down on the floor. And Vida was pitching that night, and he wrapped his arms around trying to break it up. I grabbed Vida, taking care of my pitcher, and he let go, and I went back and shattered the 6-7 vertebrae in my neck like a severe whiplash. And um, I ended up having surgery by Dr. Charles Wilson. Uh, you see the new approach now where they go on the, on the neck and the crease of the neck and go in and cheerily, uh, and he did that and removed the particles of the vertebrae off of my, uh, the nerve of my coming down on the right arm. Six weeks later, I was playing after six weeks of being in traction. So, uh, but I came back and played, but uh, that's when I hit the home run off Grant Jackson and then home run off of uh, Don Sutton, the world series. And while I missed a lot of time, I was able to come back and, and participate in the postseason. 
But yeah, that was that was something that. But you know, the, the amazing thing, guys, we go to Los Angeles to play the Dodgers in the first game, and uh, I, I can't remember the clubhouse manager's name, but it's the old clubhouse which is now used uh, by the Dodgers. They have a new clubhouse, and <laughs> this visiting clubhouse is now used by all their analytical people, which is a whole bunch of people. You can imagine the size of a clubhouse. But we're we're in there, and uh, you know, it, the the thing. We're in a workout before game one of the World Series, and I'm on one side of the clubhouse. Raleigh Fingers and Blue Moon Odom are on the other. And something is said. All of a sudden, uh, shopping carts picked up and thrown at, at uh, Raleigh by Blue Moon or Blue Moon by Raleigh. And I, I, the reason I questioned it because I headed straight back to the trainer's room. I said, I've done my peacemaking for this year. I'm done. <laughs> and I ran back. I'm shaking like a leaf. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, and the clubhouse manager said, all my years in baseball, World Series tomorrow, I've never seen anything like this when you have two pitchers fighting before game one of the World Series. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but fast forward after we beat the Dodgers in game five, John Blumen Odom and Raleigh Fingers, arms around each other. On the, I was up on the podium talking. I looked down, and I have a picture where I'm talking, and those two guys have their arms around each other. Six days basically after fighting in the clubhouse in Los Angeles, here they are best of friends. So the bottom line is a lot of fighting maybe off the field, on the field between the white lines, played hard, won world championships, and I think that's, that's the beauty of the game, that you can do what you're going to do. And, and bear in mind, too, guys, back then, we didn't have the media traveling the way they do now, where, you know, back in your area, and especially in New York, you have all these beat writers and everybody traveling. Back then, when I played, uh, when we played in the 70s, we had Jim Street and Ron Bergman, and that was it. And then get the postseason, and all these writers come in from all over the world. Hey, the A's are fighting. And the two guys who traveled with us all year would say, they're not fighting, and they'd laugh at it. But it was something that these people had never seen, but it's just the way we kind of got motivated. And don't get us fighting and getting on each other because that was not good because we would come out very strongly and win. And, you know, again, being part of that was very special. Well, Ray, in our promo, we mentioned that we were going to talk about Joe Girardi, the Phillies' new manager. Uh, hopefully we'll get yes. to see him actually do his managing on the field this year. He's, like you, a former catcher, managed the Yankees to a World Series title, assuming we do have a season at some point, which I hope we do. What should no, 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 don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> we're going to play baseball. We're going to play baseball. Play baseball. But, so what do you know about listen, Girardi Joe and what Girardi, should Phillies expect? Joe Girardi is, first of all, he's a nice, family man he's got a wife he's got kids I, you know when I interview him I always say how's the family and you know but but Joe Girardi is such a special person because he knows the game of baseball and I'm not saying it's just because he was a catcher but not surprisingly there's a lot of former catchers managing major league teams uh, as we speak of the 30 teams uh, but Joe Girardi very very astute knows the game and the thing that he does so well he utilizes the players and I think the biggest thing with the communication, and there was a little bit of lack of that with the Yankees whenever he was fired. And I remember reading where someone said the best manager that the Yankees could hire has just been fired, and that's Joe Girardi when he had been fired. Joe Girardi deserves to be in the game of baseball. He deserves to manage. He is the best manager that I've seen. I mean, and, and the thing about it, guys, if you think about how tough it is to manage I don't want to say, but I've heard comments about managing in, in Philadelphia that fans boo Santa Claus. You know, I mean, I, I know it's a rumor, you know, but I've heard That's that before. And <laughs> but, but Joe, of course, man, Joe managed in New York, did a great job under the late George Steinbrenner and, and the Yankee fans. And, and, you know, the thing about 
playing when you start playing the game of baseball and you get to postseason when Joe managed the Yankees and I'm sure it's going to be the same in Philadelphia. You don't just try to win the division or play or win the divisional series or win the league championship series. You start to win the World Series. And I think that's the ultimate goal of every manager. And I think when you have Joe Girardi managing your team, he brought Didi Gregorius over from the Yankees to play shortstop. You've got Rio Muto behind the plate. Uh, was a guy named Bryce Harper? Is he there now? Yeah. yeah. He'll, he'll be in right field. You betcha. <laughs> now, no, but I mean, it's a beautiful stadium. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to coming there. And it's, we have a scheduled trip, I think, in August where the A's will play the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Phillies in a three-city trip. And I, I, I hope and pray that we're back and, and back sooner than later. But uh, Joe Girardi, and, and again, guys, you know how tough it is to speak in front of a huge crowd. Can you imagine Joe Girardi when you go back? I think it was Daryl Kyle. Remember he passed away in his hotel room in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember that? And they get to the park and they say, where's Daryl? Joe Girardi spoke in front of that crowd at Wrigley field. And, and, you know, (laughs) Wrigley field, you talk about some fans. I mean, they love their baseball. So here's Joe Girardi saying to the fans, this game has been postponed due to a tragedy. And, you know, fans reacted, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal? But for him to be able to do that, to me, that sets him apart from a lot of people. To be a strong enough person to stand in front of that crowd with a microphone and tell these rabid fans there's no game today because of a tragedy, which happened to be with the other team. It wasn't even with the Cubs. But he did that. And to me, that will always stand out uh, how great of a person Joe Girardi is. Now you combine the fact that he caught a perfect game. I think his the name was David Cohn, uh, caught him. He caught with the Yankees. He's a catcher. He knows the game in and out. And I think he's going to be a tremendous asset to the Philadelphia Phillies. I look forward to seeing him. I called him when he got the job and congratulated him. And uh, I saw him last year when he was working some network games. They came into Pittsburgh and talked to him. And uh, just a tremendous person. So I think he's going to be really, really good for the Philadelphia Phillies. And, and not to say that um, – what, who was your manager last year? Now with the Giants, uh, Dave Kapler. You know, you know, you know so uh, you know, but but Joe's got experience, and and I think to me that's important when you have a team that the Phillies do that's supposed to win. And, and again, you go in with great expectations in a season, and you look at the players on the team, and you start saying, "Hey, this got a chance to win." Well, that's where Joe Girardi can be a huge influence as a manager because when he makes a move. He's going to know what he's making. He's managing the National League, so he can do the double switching. He's managing the American League in a tough city, New York, and now he's going to manage the Phillies. I think he's going to be tremendous. Hey, Ray, I have one final mm-hmm. question because we're going to run out of time. Uh, well, you ended up back in Cleveland after the A's, and you ended up catching a no-hitter for another Hall of Famer. You've been throwing Hall of That's Famers right. around like crazy. 22-year-old Dennis Eckersley throws a no-hitter. With you behind the place, uh, most people remember Eck as a closer. I assume he had good stuff as a kid. <laughs> you know, I remember <laughs> telling him, I think 75, 75 was his first year, and I said, I was with the A's at the time. I didn't know I was going to be catching him, but I remember looking at him. I said, hey, kid, you're going to win 20 games. You're a 20-game winner. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. And uh, so to, to catch him in that game was against the Angels. And actually, Dwayne Kuyper, who is a brother of Glenn, who I work with on NBC Sports California in the Bay Area. Dwayne was playing second base. Uh, I talked to Buddy Bell the other day. He was at third base. And the late Bobby Bonds was hitting, and I'll never forget. The umpires want to get caught up in the game. And, and again, this was before 
you had any anybody saying that this pitch is a strike or not a strike being graded by Quest Tech and all that stuff. I moved so far outside on the – I was in the left-handed batter's box when Bobby Bonds <laughs> came up, and, and he looked back at the umpire and said, hey, can he get at least a little bit closer to home plate, you know, and so I have a chance because my, my bat's not 10 feet long. But Eck had a tremendous <laughs> fastball, tremendous control, a great slider, and he pitched the game and, and pitched a no-hitter, and we beat the Angels by a score of one to nothing. That's when Frank Tanana was the Frank Tanana who could throw hard, and then he became a, a – great finesse type left-hander with the Tigers, but with the Angels, this was one to nothing, Memorial Day, 1977. There may have been about 7,000 people there, but if you, you talk to people, it was about 700,000 at Old Municipal <laughs> Stadium. It was a beautiful day. People were on the lake. But, you know, guys, the beauty of that is that I was fortunate to catch his no-hitter and then fast-forward to broadcast his 300 saves and to interview oh, him on the field wow. at, at the Coliseum when that happened. But, you know, also at the time, I'll give you some homework before we talk again. You look at Dennis Eckersley in the game prior to his no-hitter. Look at the no-hitter and look at the next game. There's a guy named Cy Young who has the record for the most consecutive hitless innings. Dennis Eckersley was within one or maybe one and a third, very close. He gave up a home run to Rupert Jones at Seattle Kingdom, and that broke the string of because he pitched. I mean, there was no such thing as a pitch count then. And the previous game, he didn't give up a hit in a 12-inning game, maybe in the last nine or something like that. And then the no-hitter, and then he goes into Seattle. So he was at 21-22 consecutive hitless innings. And he gives wow. up the home run to Rupert Jones. And I called, by the way. You know, so I take the fall of that, you know, because I called it, and he hit it down the right field line for a home run that ended it. But, you know, for him, though, in 1987, and you see now where catchers look into the dugout. Now, people will say to me, is the manager calling the pitches? And I said, no. It started in 1987 when Tony Russo said to Terry Steinbach, who was an outstanding catcher, he said, Terry, I'm going to call the pitch outs, the throw overs, the step offs, because I want to take the pressure off of you. Well, from a catcher standpoint, I love calling pitch outs. I love to be successful. To look at the guy at first base and, and see him, that maybe he's going to be going to call a pitch out and then throw him out. Well, Dennis Eckersley, when he went to uh, Oakland in 87, he hated the fact that Tony Russo said, I want to make you a closer. He goes, what? I'm a starter. And so here's this mindset of a starter to be a closer. And, and Tony Russo basically said, you can help me by pitching an inning three or four times a week versus starting every fifth day because it was a five-man rotation. So he became, 390 saves later, a Hall of Famer. And he knows he would never go in the Hall of Fame without that. But here's 100-plus wins as a starter. 300-plus saves as a closer, and I think John Smoltz might be the only other because if you are a starter, you're a starter your whole career. If you're a closer or a reliever, you're a reliever. Very rarely do you see one start one way and become the other. But Dennis Eckersley was the best, and he's a good friend. And, uh, you know, he, he's still, again, like Gaylord and, and Catfish did, when he said, hey, you know, you, I, I always shook you off one time or something like that. But he says, I couldn't have done it without you. But, I mean, you know, these, these pitchers are so nice to say that, but that's the importance of a catcher making sure they handle their pitcher. And I was fortunate to catch some very good pitchers that uh, we didn't name some of them, but uh, and mentioning Gaylord Catfish and Dennis Eckerman, those are three pretty good guys. Yes, sir. Well, guys, Matter of fact, one last thing. Yes, they are. Yeah, how about that? How about that? 
One last yeah. thing. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you know this, Bill, but when Ray was in Philly with the A's broadcast crew in 2017, he actually got assaulted right there in the broadcast booth. Yeah, I don't, I, I, you don't need to bring that up. I found some of the audio from that very night. Here it is. Why are you doing this to me? What are you doing for that? <laughs> the laughing went on for another 30 seconds or so, but I have to ask you, Ray, how good a kisser is the Philly fanatic? <laughs> I know that's why I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and, and that was I thought, up, but you know, I thought it, it was a it, it was a rain delay, and he came up, and you know, hey, the Philly fanatics in, in the booth, and everybody knows he's the, the greatest mascot in the history of the game, and he comes up and he drops this on me, and you know, it's okay, but then our pre and post game people said, and yesterday or last night Ray got this lip lock from the Philly fanatic, and they showed it. I'm like, give me a break. You know, <laughs> some things just don't change. But, you know, I, uh, I I had the pleasure of meeting and talking to the Philly Fanatic. And, uh, you know, he's he's a treasure, man. He's a treasure. And, and he, he came up the booth. But it was set up by my partner, which I'll never forget. And, I, you know, paybacks are, you know, they, you know what they say about that. But, um, oh, yeah. but you, you know, some things you just, you know, and, and that's the, import, the, the fortunate, unfortunate thing about broadcasting. Because, you know, the thing is that once you say it, it's there forever as we're seeing yeah. in the political world and the sports world, whatever it might be. And so, unfortunately for me, that's going to follow me the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> I, would, I, I would almost say getting run over at home plate, uh, you know, than, than having something <laughs> like that. But, you know, I, I was hoping you would not bring that up because in, in essence, we went in 2011, 14, they came, Phillies came to Oakland. We went back in uh, 17 and going back again in 20. And, you know, guys, I'll, I'll say this to you about advanced scouting. In 2011, Charlie Manuel was managing, and I would have to look at my scorebook because I still have it, but it came down to the ninth inning. There was a runner at third high score, and Bob Melvin had just taken over the ball club. He's a tremendous manager, and you talk about Girardi. I, another, another former catcher, but Bob Melvin, to me, watching him on a daily basis, he's the best I've ever seen personally because I get to watch him every day. But in that particular series, the hitter came up, and Bob Melvin was in between, is he going to bunt? So do I play him third baseman even with a bag, or do I play him back? And he flipped the coin, and unfortunately, he played him in. The base hit just went past the third baseman, and the game was over. I remember talking to Charlie Manuel the next day, who another tremendous person. Good. And I hope, I hope his health is improving and he's back to normal because he's talking about a, a treasure, Charlie Manuel. But I remember talking to Charlie around the batting cage, and I'll think of the hitter whenever we finish this, but I couldn't, can't think of him now. I said, if he ever bunted, he said, never. And, but that's the part of the If the A's had had an advanced scout who had watched the Phillies and could have told Bob Melvin, this hitter never bunts, then Bob Melvin would have played the third base back in normal position. He would have caught the ball that ended up in left field, and the game continues. But he didn't. But that's the importance of scouts. That's a whole other subject in itself. But in that particular instance against the Phillies, in Philadelphia, that occurred in 2011, much better than I remember that than what you just said uh, about the 17th season. You know, so but no, I, I look forward to coming in, and uh, I know we've exceeded the time that you talked about, but you know, like I said, so much to talk about. We didn't even get to Marvin Miller and all those things, but we no, we have a we have Next a whole time. other Next list time. of questions for you, Ray. How about hey, Ray? How about we just plan on? I'll, I'll get a hold of you. We'll do this again here in a few weeks before baseball does get going. And uh, yeah. but we certainly appreciate you coming on with us. It's been fantastic. I I could do this all night too, 
Uh, but thanks for coming in, and uh, and let's do it again. I look forward to it, guys. Best to you. And uh, Philly, Philadelphia is a great, great city, and uh, I appreciate Ambrose getting in touch with me and then putting us together because uh, I know you guys do a tremendous job. The Philly fans are fortunate that you are doing this and uh, happy to be a part of it. I know it's three-hour time change, but for the month of April, I'll be hunkered down. So uh, anytime you want to talk baseball, you know how to reach me. Fantastic. Thanks, Ray. We appreciate it. Great stuff. All right, guys. Have a good day. Have a good evening. All right, you too. Hey, Chet, if you're looking for insurance in the tri-state area, we've got the spot for you. All-state insurance in Westchester, PA. Yes, we do. One of the best benefits of having an all-state insurance policy is getting a local agent like Dave LaVoy who is dedicated to you. Building that personal relationship means you can work with someone who knows you and understands your family's needs, someone you can call when you have questions or need help. Dave is dedicated to protecting what's most important to you and your family. Call Dave today at Allstate in Westchester, Pennsylvania, 610-430-0700. Again, the number is 610-430-0700. And, hey, Bill, this guy celebrated birthday number 75 the other day, the great Eric Clapton. And, and you know what, Chad, another birthday today, uh, and I'm forgetting the exact number, 71 maybe, one of our former guests, Willie the Philly Montanez birthday today. Ah, yes, one of my favorites. Oh, by the way, speaking of uh, Ray Fossey, who was just terrific, by the way, for anyone wondering why we didn't ask Ray about the infamous 1970 All-Star Game ending collision with Pete Rose, it's because Ray is simply tired of talking about that, and we honored his request on that front. And besides, we had about 20 other questions that we still haven't gotten to. So we wanted to cover a lot of ground, and Ray will be back in a few weeks so we can talk a little more. Absolutely. Hey, Chet, it's going to be tough to to beat Ray, but who do we have coming to Philly Press Box Radio next week? Well, it's not etched in stone yet, but I have another baseball guy hopefully lined up. So uh, more baseball talk next week while we hopefully – you know, can talk about a season happening sometime in May. We hope. We'll see. I doubt it. Maybe June, but at some point. How's that? All right. Sounds good. Hey, you want to try to uh, – we're, we're a little late on time. You want to try to fit in our week eight of Random Q2? Tell the listeners how this works, and let's do it. Yeah, we can do it. Uh, in a nutshell, Bill, it is year four of Random Q2. This is the eighth week, so only two more to go after this. Just like in past years, it's a 10-week series, over two minutes or so. Each week I hit you with two questions. One is about a relatively current topical sports topic, and then the other one was written down weeks or months ago. Uh, Ten questions that are numbered one through ten. You've already picked seven, so you've got three left there. Now, your first question, Bill, is while it won't be the big fun fan event as in recent years, the NFL, for now anyway, is still planning to go through with holding its three-day draft starting April 23rd. Is that the right decision, or should they postpone it for a month or so? Well, I guess uh, I'm going to say if if the country is still in this lockdown-type situation, I'm going to say they should cancel it. They're no no better than the rest of us that are having to follow these rules that uh, are important or they wouldn't be in place. I, I would say they should probably cancel it. Yeah, the problem is they can't really get to do any in-face meetings with the prospective draftees and you know, give them physicals and all that stuff. So, yeah, I would put it off for another month or so. But that's just me. They didn't ask me. All right, your second question, Bill. As in years past, you get to pick a number. As in weeks past, any number, 1 through 10. But 
right now you only have three left. You have three, four, and nine. So what do you want? Number three. Number three. All right, we've talked a lot about music because I'm a music guy. What was the very first album or one of the first that you remember buying for yourself or getting as a gift as a young Bill Furman? Mm. Gee whiz. I, I'll probably have to go back to maybe it was the Cat Stevens' greatest hits, Eagles' greatest hits. Um, early, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, I had an older sister, so she had all the music. So uh, okay. that was actually mine. I'm going to go with that, and maybe uh, uh, "Greetings from Asbury Park" might be might be on that list as well. Okay, yeah, I know mine. Mine was the Beatles' "Magical Mystery Tour" in the late '60s because uh, no, I heard a lot of the too. stuff, and yeah, yeah, yeah we had you know, that. I actually yep. have that in a frame on a wall in my basement because it was my very first album that I either bought or requested and got as a gift. So there you go. That's it for Random Q this week. Q2. All right. Good deal. Hey, Chet, let's give a shout out to the PPCC 118 Raz Room. They post great sports memorabilia on their Facebook page so people can take a chance of winning something they may not be able to afford or have access to. All items come with certificates of authenticity. They continue to run out great autograph memorabilia for all the Philly teams and more. There are only 21 lines available, so your chances of winning are 1 to 21. Pretty good odds. Check out the Facebook page. Like it or follow it. It's PPCC 118 Razroom. That's right. PPCC 118 Razroom on Facebook. And hey, Bill, a couple of other uh, football notes. Timmy Jernigan reportedly is going to the Texans. And oh, I had another football note, and now I forgot it because I didn't write it down, and I can't remember. But Timmy Jernigan apparently going to the Houston Texans, but they don't need him anymore. we got a bunch of DTs now. I didn't know that uh, Jernigan was leaving. Interesting. I just saw that hmm. today, yep. Okay. Uh, how about a parting shot for you, Mr. Chesco? Do you have one? I can handle that, yes, sir. Uh, Bill, as you know, we've been fortunate to have made a lot of new friends during the nearly six years we've been doing our show. Some are still just Facebook friends. Maybe we'll change that later on down the road. Others we have met and hung out with. We have also become friends with a number of our many great guests over the years, and that would include the legendary Ray Dinger, a 14-time visitor to our show, which still amazes me. Anyway, Ray was a guest on the Edge of Philly Sports podcast last week with our buddy Fred Hugo and his co-hosts Al and Joey. And Fred mentioned us to Ray, and our ditty was very nice and had this to say about us. Check this out. Chet's a good man. I met him a long time ago when uh, when we were doing a show up at Sandy's up in Bucks County when Mark Eckel and I were doing some stuff up there. He came one night and we met. And I've done his show with he and Bill a couple of times. And they're good dudes. I, I enjoy that. I always enjoy conversing with them. You hear that, Bill? We're good dudes. We are good we dudes. We are good dudes from Ray Diddy. And you got to like that. And Chet's <laughs> a good guy. I don't know about the other guy. <laughs> and thanks to Fred for mentioning us to Ray. Thanks to Ray for the kind words. And Trust me, Bill, there's a good chance you'll be hearing that little soundbite from our ditty again. All right. Hey, Chet, I want to remind the listeners that here in just about four minutes, we're going to switch over to Facebook Live uh, to my page, Bill Furman's page on Facebook Live, and we're going to do round two of our Philly Press Box Radio trivia tonight from 8 to 8.30. Jump over, join in. Round one was Sunday. It was a lot of fun. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Yeah, this is for the people listening live here Wednesday evening. If you're listening on a podcast days later, forget what Bill just said. But uh, yeah, yeah, good luck right. with the trivia show tonight. And have fun, and let's wrap it up, Bill. 
All right. Well, we got to wrap it up. Let First of all, let's thank tonight's special guest, Ray Fossey. We want to thank Ambrose Reagan again for setting Ray up as a guest. He was absolutely fantastic. We appreciate that, Ambrose. Our sponsors, the Irish Rover Station House, Bob Sullivan's LikeYourAge.com, PPCC 118 Raz Room, and Dave LaVoy of Allstate Insurance in Westchester for their continued support of the show. For Jim Chachesco, this is Bill Furman. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll join Philly Press Box Radio next Wednesday, April 8th at 7 p.m. You can listen to our website, phillypressboxradio.com, on blogtalkradio.com slash phillypressboxradio, on Google Podcasts, as well as Apple Podcasts, Bullhorn, Player FM, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. High hopes, Philadelphia sports fans, and stay safe. Phil Herman and Jim Chesco. They're good dudes. They're good dudes. They're good dudes. Ah. Ah.